Amen. You can have a seat. Well, again, uh, my name is Jacob Warren, and I have the pleasure of serving here as the lead pastor at Veritas Church. And so if you're new, welcome. Uh, Veritas Church exists for the fame of Jesus in all things, to make disciples that love God, love people, and advance the gospel. Um, we here, uh, Veritas Church has been a church in the city uh, for almost 10 years. September will make 10 years for us, and uh, that's the incredible grace of God that he's seen to uh, sustain us for those many long years of doing uh, you know, ministry here in this city. We recently purchased a, a building um, off of South Riley Road, 584 South Riley, and so hopefully this will be the very last Easter that we celebrate here at FCA, and can we just thank God for that? <laughs> Yeah, uh, we've really loved our stay here at FCA. God has been really gracious to uh, us here to be able to, to do ministry and to be able to facilitate a place for worship for us. But again, we believe the church isn't a building. Uh, the church is a people, a family uh, of followers of Jesus called by God to unite together on mission. Uh, and we believe that we're on mission here in this city to be for the city, for the, for the military, and for the fame of Jesus in all things. So if you're brand new here, I want to say welcome. We've prayed for you. Uh, if you've got a handout on the way in, I just want to welcome you to take that thing to the connect table at the end of the gathering. Consider filling it out to be able to get uh, become a part of the, the family here, get involved in some way. Um, if you uh, want to and you're kind of more of an app type person, you can download our church app. Uh, we have one of those, and so you can get connected that way as well. Um, but we are here this morning to celebrate the good news of the resurrection together. And so uh, if you have been in church before, or maybe this is your first time in church in a long time, you've probably heard the word gospel before. Uh, some of us have heard that term, and we just kind of uh, just check it in the back of our mind as kind of Christianese for like words that Christians say, and we're like, oh, that's a good word that uh, my friends that follow Jesus like to throw around all the time. But uh, many of us may not actually know what the word gospel actually means. Uh, the word gospel means good news. Good news. Like a herald would come into a city, maybe after a battle or after a victory, and come proclaim the good news that, uh, that the, the king has won, or that the battle is over, the, 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 the war has been won. This is the good news that we get to hear, and specifically the good news about Jesus. And when people talk about the good news of Jesus, they tend to frame it in many different ways. Maybe one way you've heard it framed is around the kingdom of God, the teachings of Jesus about how for us to live. He shows us the way to live, and that's part of the good news. Or maybe it's just the fulfillment of the scriptures that you've been shown before of all the amazing ways that the Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled in the person and work and came true in Jesus. Or maybe it's this idea of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus came to be the perfect atoning sacrifice that fulfilled this Old Testament law about the sacrifice of all those, uh, the blood of bulls and goats and all of that, you know, yucky stuff in the Old Testament we don't like to talk about, to, to, to um, uh, satisfy the wrath of God for sin. See, all of those are beautiful parts of the gospel, but we're in the letter to the Corinthians. And you see the slide up there on the screen, 1 Corinthians, the church divided, now united, and they were divided by a whole lot of things. One of the things that they were divided by is this idea of resurrection from the dead. See, what makes the good news actually good news is that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. Now, many of us here in the room right now, you might be thinking of like, why are we talking about that? Who's making that argument nowadays except for some like wackos on the Discovery Channel who like, you know, have weird hair and are talking about aliens all the time. And they're like, well, resurrection really couldn't happen or Jesus is, he actually died. He's still in a tomb somewhere. 
See, that's not where a lot of us are, are kind of having problems, but true, many of us not outwardly deny that Jesus rode from the dead, but I think we all need to hear this this morning, follower of Jesus, or if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that without Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we are without hope. But because of the resurrection of the dead, we have the greatest reason for hope in the entire universe. And I said universe, not just world, I said universe. And if there's one thing I want us to all walk away from this Easter is not uh, maybe, the, maybe the, the thing that you got for your kid in the Easter basket or how awesome that set was from the band, like amazing. Can we thank God for how amazing uh, they led us in worship? Even those, th- those things might be awesome, the thing I want us to all walk away with this morning is this good news that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead changes everything. So if you've got a Bible, meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. We'll be in verses 12 through 34. And um, uh, if, you have, if you don't have a Bible, maybe grab one of those black hardback ones on the way in. Consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to keep that. Uh, we love the Bible here. We, wanna, uh, we want you to love the Bible too. Um, and if you're here and you're just like, I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know what the claims of Jesus. I want to invite you to actually read them. Maybe you pick up that Bible, uh, start in the New Testament, maybe in particular the, the Gospel of John, and then read the words of Jesus for yourself. Um, but today, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, and uh, after we read this text together, we'll walk through three questions, and the three questions are this for us this morning. Why does the resurrection matter? Two, what does the resurrection mean? And three, what does the resurrection change? Let's read this passage, or I'll read it out loud for us, verses 12 through 34. Here, church, the word of the Lord for you this morning, this Easter morning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, that if it's true that the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, we who are followers of Jesus, of all people, most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come a resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom. To God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things under subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. God will not contradict himself. 
when all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead um, are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? Humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Let's pray together again. Lord Jesus, I ask for your help again this morning as we open these scriptures together, as we hear these words proclaimed from your word. God, I pray that your word would go forth this morning and that it would not return void, that you'd bring dead hearts to life this morning in this room. Would you bring um, sad hearts joy because of the good news of the resurrection? Would you bring weary hearts um, news of your strength and your presence this morning um, by the power of your Holy Spirit uh, alive and well in us because of the power of the resurrection? And God, I pray uh, that all of us here this morning and would you allow us to be able to hear these words from your scriptures as they're proclaimed in a way that enlivens our hearts, that brings us from death to life. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Now before we dive into our three questions uh, to help guide our time through the text, uh, I just want to clear something up. At the end of those verses, in verses uh, 29 through 30, Paul says some pretty wacky stuff there about people being baptized on behalf of the dead. And I, I want to point that out to just kind of get it out of the way early of, hey, Paul wasn't advocating for that. He was saying these statements about like, hey, that's some like weird stuff going on for you. And it's more examples of like, why would you try to think about any of those things if the good news of the resurrection wasn't actually true? So Paul wasn't advocating for those things, and uh, we shouldn't either, because that's just weird, right? <laughs> that's just weird. So one, why does the resurrection matter? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, uh, this is probably the first question uh, that would come to your mind of like, well, why am I here? Am I just waiting for Easter lunch? Am I just, I got here to tell my mom, like when I get back on post, like, hey, I, yeah, I went to church, I found one online or whatever. If you're asking this question, why does the resurrection matter? Um, see, why would Paul spend so much of his time in this letter devoted to defending the reality of the resurrection? If you're asking the question, why does the resurrection matter? It's because it must be a big deal. See, apparently there was a group of folks within that church at Corinth who were denying the reality of the resurrection, uh, meaning that they were trying to hold on to hope in Jesus while treating the resurrection of Jesus as something just kind of optional. Like, I, I don't want that on my sandwich, on my gospel sandwich. You know, like the Apostles' Creed we confessed earlier, really good example of historic statement of faith that we can say, yep, all of this it really, really matters when it comes to what we could, should confess as good and right doctrine, but we just can't remove, if you're like a, not a tomato person, or maybe you're not an onion person, you can't just take that off the sandwich and say, yeah, I'm going to go without the resurrection because I don't really like that one. That one's, that one's yucky to me. We can't do this. 
See, the, the, the people in Corinth, you can, it's not really hard to imagine their, with their Greek background and philosophy that they might be A-OK with some type of like uh, continuance and some unembodied sense kind of floating around in the ether somewhere um, af- in the afterlife. But bodily resurrection, I mean, just think about it. Bodily resurrection, the only examples we have of this in like, culture is from the movie Aladdin. Like when I was a kid, like the animated thing, you know, where he says, yeah, uh, genie uh, to Aladdin says, I'm not going to do the whole bringing people back from the dead thing. Nah, I ain't going to do that. It's not a pretty picture. And then he kind of transforms into green. He's covered in slime because guess what happens if you bring people back from the dead if they've been rotting? They don't smell too good, right? They don't smell too good. They don't look too hot, you know? So bodily resurrection seemed to them like if something gross that was kind of left over from their Jewish background, and, and it was kind of optional when it came to following Jesus. But here, here's, here's the kicker. Now, they, you cannot leave resurrection as something optional on the table. And the resurrection of Jesus wasn't something gross. It wasn't something uh, disgusting or whatever. And, and for sure, I think for some of us in here, you might be thinking, well, aren't there things that we can have disagreements on? Aren't there things that we can just, non-essentials of the faith that we can hold on to and have different opinions and perspectives on and still be a follower of Jesus? Of course. Those, those things are non-essentials to the gospel, but the resurrection just isn't one of them. For example, here's a few things we can have different perspectives on, like how and when Jesus is going to return and make all things new. It's like one of the favorite things that Christians like to argue about, right? You know, like how and when Jesus is going to come back. But here's the thing that's not optional in there, the fact that he is coming back. Non-optional. How and when? Yeah, differences of opinion. Maybe that's something that we all love talking about, the exact age of the earth, right? And have differences of opinion of that. Or uh, how we go about structuring the church or our philosophy of ministry. You can even have different convictions about how and, and, and we should observe the sacraments of communion and baptism, which is what we're commanded to do as the church. And yet we disagree about best practices of that, even within the, the whole family of people that, that follow Jesus. And that's okay. But again, resurrection just isn't one of the things that's an open-handed issue. Because the truth is, if there is no resurrection, we have no hope. Paul make this, makes, makes this abundantly clear in verses through 12 through 14. Let me read those again for us. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul makes it clear that everything as a follower of Jesus is at stake based on the reality of the resurrection. There's no such thing as resurrection from the dead, then Christ's own resurrection can be called into question. That he could be dead and rotting away somewhere. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then our own preaching is in vain. That like what's going on right now in this gathering right now in this church is like, absolutely a complete waste of time. We should all pack it up and go home if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. And their faith is in vain. That you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, have given your life over to a silly myth that when, when, even when I moved my family from Raleigh to help plant this church nine years ago, like we were wasting our time. All the, the time that I've spent praying and the time that you've spent, you know, praying and reading your Bible and caring about things of the faith are just a waste of time if the resurrection isn't true. Paul doubles down in verse 17. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile, and we're all still in our sins. We have no hope before God. Because when we die, we have no hope of being reconciled to God. We still bear the due punishment for our sin, and what awaits for us is eternal separation from God. This is a big deal. And Paul doesn't even stop there. In verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if he just kind of helps us live a, 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 a stronger, better, faster life, you know, more moral life, we are of all people most to be pitied. And I know this sounds bleak. Welcome to Easter at Veritas Church, right? This sounds bleak, but it's true. If we have hope only in Jesus in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. And what this does, it, it destroys the arguments made by some who would say that if we just try to be a good person, try to do good to others, this kind of moralistic arguments, then we can die and just you know, become an angel or kind of float around the clouds somewhere and you know, have this happy afterlife. Uh, people like to talk about this in our culture all the time. And some of the, the dumbest things that are said are actually said by Christians about this sometimes, right? Well, you know, you go to a funeral of some person who's an absolute pagan, someone who, like, doesn't give a rip about Jesus, and they just can't stop talking about how, you know, they're up on a cloud somewhere playing a harp at the guy's funeral. And that's garbage. It's absolute garbage. We cannot have hope in those things. It's a garbage argument. Paul will say later this kind of thinking of, like, just trying to be a good person, you know, trying to be good, he says in verse 32, this is really harsh. He quotes one of their, their local philosophers. If, dead, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, this is straight out of a scene out of 300, right? Like the movie with the, you know, the Greeks, they're about to all die, and so they're like, yep, party it up, because we're all going to die tomorrow. This is the type of, 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 of thinking that Paul says that if we only have hope in Jesus in this life, we might as well throw in the towel because we're going to die and go to hell anyways. See, the biggest problem that we need to face is that not that we're offended by a bodily resurrection of the dead, but rather many of us who claim to be followers of Jesus don't live in a way that reflects the reality of the resurrection. We just don't. Instead of living lives that are marked by and reflect the freedom in Christ found in the resurrection, sadly, we give ourselves to lesser things and we're marked by things of the world. We're marked by things like cynicism. I mean, you go to watch any Netflix special right now, and I'm not advocating for that, right? You know, there's a lot of bad words and bad things in there. But if you did, just say you did, it's marked completely by cynicism. Everything is terrible. Everything is bad. Everyone is this and that and another. Even in our culture, all of our jokes, you go watch a comedy movie right now, half the jokes are just absolute cynicism. Some of y'all believe that's like your, your, your spiritual gift is sarcasm. You know, like, I'm just good at sarcasm. It's my gift from the Lord. It's my burden to bear, you know. But really, the cynicism is deep baked in us, and it's a mark of the world, not a mark of the joy, the deep joy that we can be given in Christ because of the resurrection. Or we're marked by pride. Like, yeah, I pulled myself up my own, my, my own bootstraps. I'm, you know, we, oh, I, I got this for myself. I tried harder than, every, than anyone else. And we mark ourselves by pride rather than the humility that we should have because of Jesus. We're marked by consumerism or materialism or waging political culture wars, and we end up looking just like the world around us instead of 
the revolutionary countercultural movement that spread all, all over the globe with good news to share. This is our heritage, and this is our hope. And if we're going to live like the, resur- the resurrection really matters, we need to know what the resurrection actually means for us. What we need, again, is to be reminded of the gospel. I think Paul encapsulates this well in verses 20 through 22. Let me read those again. But if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man came death, by man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, our first father, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here we come to our second question. What does the resurrection mean? And in, What does it mean? And in order to explain what the resurrection means, you need to understand what preceded the resurrection. Importantly, if Jesus really was God, whom he claimed to be, how does God die? And maybe more importantly, why did God die? So we know from the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, this consistent narrative of Jesus being uh, betrayed, by his closest friends, uh, namely Judas. He's handed over by officials. He's abandoned by his disciples. He's unfairly tried and ultimately whipped and crucified on a Roman cross between two criminals. And last week, Ryan preached from verses 1 through 11. And Paul recounts the details. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of first importance about the gospel and what he includes there is, is not just details about the death of Jesus, but a chronicling about what Jesus did. He died for our sins. This is why Jesus died. And if Jesus died for our sins, if that's why he died, it means that there's more going on than 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified on that cross rather than a man being unjustly murdered. He wasn't just a good teacher being murdered on a cross, treated unfairly. Something more was going on there. Romans 5 tells us this. But God shows his love for us, who he died for us. While we were still sinners in our sin, Christ died for us, for our sin. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What Jesus was doing on the cross was dying for our sins and saving us from the wrath of God. Our just punishment for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us like this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was spotless, sinless. Why? Why did God make him to be sin who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the resurrection means. Jesus didn't endure just the most horrific death imaginable. He bore the crushing weight of all the sins of the world, our sins. And that means that when he resurrected from the dead, he showed his triumph over both sin, the grave, Satan, all powers, all darkness, forever. This is what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that God is real. If you're here and you're a skeptic in the room, you have to do something with the resurrection of Jesus. There's not been a claim that has been more perpetuated throughout history, more than this one, 
that has spiritual significance. Just think of the billions of followers of Jesus that have been claiming that a man, a man, claimed to be God, a God-man, died and then came back to life again after he said he would. I don't know about you, but that guy, whoever that guy was who was dead and he came back again from the grave, that guy gets to be in charge. That guy gets to say what goes. And that claim has been perpetuated. People have suffered for this good news. People have died. The original disciples were all tortured in a, in a myriad of ways and died because of this one claim that Jesus, the God-man, resurrected from the grave and he's in charge. He's the king. He's the Lord of all. So if you're here and you're a doubter or a skeptic, the resurrection means that God is real. The world really is more magical than you think. The, 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 the truth is that we are not just purely physical beings. We are spiritual beings as well, and God has something to say about your life. The resurrection means the story of the Bible is true, that from Genesis to Revelation, the whole book has been telling one story with the pinnacle of the story being the person and work of Jesus and the exclamation point on the life of Christ is his death on the cross and resurrection on Easter Sunday, showing his power over all things. The question that we as humanity have been asking since the very beginning of, man, why is everything so broken? Who's going to come fix this mess? Who's going to get, bring us rest from the curse of death? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The resurrection means that there is hope after death, that we don't need to fear death because it's not the end. We don't need to fear aging. We don't need to go get a thousand plastic surgeries. We don't have to worry about injecting things into our body to try to keep us living longer. No, we don't need to fear death because, like the old hymn we just sang a couple minutes ago, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive, not dead, and that he is in charge. Look again with me at verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, not just most rules, every rule, and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. See, up until here, we've heard this good news of the gospel again and again and again and the facts of it again and again and again that Jesus really is who he says he is. He really is in charge. But again, I want you to hear with a resounding tone that Jesus didn't just die on the cross just to save you from your sins out of a sense of obligation or a sense of just like, well, I got to go herd the cats. No, God really loves you. He really loved you enough to die death-deserving for your sins on that cross. He really was put in a tomb, but he didn't stay dead, and he rose on the third day to show victory, not over death, just death, but your death, deserving for your sin, and your sin that was justified by his crucifixion. And in doing so, God shows his love for all of us to die for us while we were still sinners, not 
deserving anything, no ability to earn God's love for us in our own sense, but by his grace, God has loved us before we loved him and sent his son to die so that we might experience resurrection life in him. Again, resurrection changes everything. If you think that God is just some um, just angry father in the sky waiting to kind of crush you like a bug, it destroys that lie. The resurrection shows that there's a God in heaven who loves you, enough to send his son to die for you. There's a God in heaven that will not let uh, the guilty go unpunished. He will not uh, allow the atrocities that have happened, his, his beloved humanity to go unpunished. And you know what? Jesus suffered on the, Christ, on the cross to bear the weight of all of our sins because we have been the ones that have brought those sufferings to others in the world. But God doesn't judge us according to our own sins. He poured out his wrath upon his son so that we could come into the family. And so that all we could experience is love by God, our Father, who actually really loves us and doesn't just put up with us. He actually wants us in the family, son or daughter here in the room. Hear these words. You are loved by God. Really loved. Hear the words of John 20, where the resurrected Jesus appears in the room of his fearful disciples who'd locked themselves in a room, just absolutely afraid. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. See, they hadn't seen Jesus yet. They had seen the empty tomb. They knew that Jesus had resurrected from the grave. They proclaimed it from the women and the angels. They hadn't seen Jesus' face. And Jesus came and stood among them. And you know what he didn't say? You idiots, y'all abandoned me. Y'all left me. You hung me out to dry. No, his words to his friends were this. Peace be with you. He was happy to be among those whom he loved, those whom he died for. Verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The mean, this is why, how I suffered for you. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. See, the resurrection doesn't just mean that we get the forgiveness of our sins, but we get a new identity in Jesus and we have a pathway towards resurrection life in our own lives and a pathway that leads to our own eventual resurrection. See, Jesus doesn't give up on his disciples that abandon him. Those whom he was suffering for on the cross for their sins in real time. Now he comes and meets them. He shows them the means by which he did suffer. And he doesn't come with condemnation, shame, or blame. He comes with peace. That's good news, church. That's good news. And they were glad to see their Savior as you gathered here this morning, were you glad to come proclaim and see and, and, and embrace your Savior as risen from the grave? Later on when we come to the table and we see the bread and the cup, see this, as Jesus inviting you to himself, like look at my hands, look at my side where I was pierced, I was pierced, you bring you into this family. And again, what does the resurrection change? This last question for us. Let's ponder it together. What does the resurrection change? <laughs> it changes 
everything. Because when Jesus comes back, he says to his disciples, okay, I'm done with you guys. All right, I'm going to lead the charge here. No, I says, no, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, you are coming to the front lines. You are going to be sent by me as the Father has sent me. I'm going to send you, receive the Holy Spirit. And what frames this question, was the resurrection change, is I want this to be framed in the words of Jesus himself from Matthew 16 when he told the disciples this. He said, anyone who would come after me, if you believe this good news of the resurrection, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says that my lives marked by the resurrection life will be marked by self-denial. They will be marked by freedom from self-preservation. Jesus says that the only way to find new life is to lose it. You've got to lose your own life. Meaning in order to have lives changed by the resurrection, we've got to experience resurrection. And here comes the bad news. In order to experience resurrection, what has to happen first? You have to die. Now, the Bible has some news about that as well. The Bible says that if you aren't a follower of Jesus, you're already dead. Dead in your sins. Okay, so that's not great news, right? But here's the good news. God has made a way for us to be made alive. God has made a way for us to experience resurrection in him, free from sin and free from the things that are robbing you of joy, free to experience life, new life in him. And all you need to do is repent and believe in that good news of resurrection life in Jesus. What I mean by repentance is just this, the idea of turning, turning away from what you were once facing and turning to Jesus, choosing turning away from sin and the way you're living life now and turning to God, choosing a different way and believing, believing in the finished work of Jesus in your place, dying the death that you deserve for sin and resurrected to bring you new life. And if you've done those two things, a miracle has happened. If you have repented and believed, a true miracle, actually the greatest miracle that could ever happen, has happened in you. You have already been brought from death to life. And everyone here in this room that is a follower of Jesus, every time we hear that, man, this should just well up in us this in extreme sense of joy of like, God has done the miraculous in me. God has done the most amazing thing possible in me. He's brought me to life again in himself. I've been resurrected. I've been brought to new life. Me, the one who gets it wrong. Me, the one who knows my own sin, who knows the way that I'm just going to get it wrong. But again, because of what Jesus has done, I have been brought to new life, and that could be for you as well. See, that's not all. Now you get to walk in the freedom of new life in Jesus. And I think this passage gives us at least three things that life changed by resurrection should be marked by. Three things, the, free, the fear, freedom from the fear of death, freedom from slavery to our desires, and freedom from sin and shame. Look at these last three things together about what this resurrection life actually should look like. First, the freedom from fear of death. See, without a fear of death, it means that we can willingly lay our lives down in service to others. It's not like the world lays their lives down in service to others either, because if you think about any other religion in the world, you can go, go research and you know, go read whatever you want. 
All other religions are based around the idea of being able to make yourself good enough in order to appease the divine. Making yourself pretty enough in order to gain entrance in whatever eternal life is afterwards or just make yourself feel good enough about yourself to just keep, keep going on until tomorrow. Because the, the biggest religion right now that's overtaking the globe right now is worship of the self. Worship of the self. But in Christ, we get a better word. We have a word of gospel. And we get to lay down our lives in service to others, not to gain our own righteousness, because we've already received it. That's what Romans said earlier. <laughs> we have become the righteousness of God. We have the righteousness of God. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And because of that truth, man, we are free from needing to, to, to die in order to gain something for ourselves. But it's in the giving up of our life that we gain everything in Jesus. Many of us here in the room are in the military, and so you get this. Uh, you're doing a noble thing by serving our country, and we're grateful for you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to check your motives regularly. Like, am I serving, in a sense, to gain something for myself, or am I serving out of a joyful calling to lay down my life for others? But it's not just reserved for the military. This is every vocation. This is every calling. This is pastors, lay people alike. Every, every one of us who are followers of Jesus must check our motives and say, like, am I serving? Am I giving? Am I, uh, uh, am I doing what I'm doing in order to gain something for myself? Am I just working for the attaboys? Or am I defined by what Jesus has already accomplished in my place? Because at the end of your life, when we gather in a room like this around your body for a funeral— the best thing, the most amazing thing, the most miraculous thing that could be said about you is not all the good deeds that you did, but the hope that you had beyond the grave. The hope that you had in Jesus, that resurrection life was coming for you, that death was not the end, and Jesus died the death that you deserve for sin in order to gain you eternal life in God. You're not defined by what you do. Two, freedom from slavery, from our desires. See, Paul is mocking the world at the end of verse 32, where he says that, you know, it, we better eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And what this is, is this freedom from this internal identity that might define you, of your own desires. And our culture is absolutely just ravished with these ideas of like, the thing that I want, or the thing that is inside of me that's propelling me towards something, that's the thing that ultimately defines me. That's the thing I should give into. That's the thing I should propel myself towards. And so you could even think of it in the practical terms of just gluttony or, or over-drinking. We as followers of Jesus have been freed by those desires not to overindulge in any way because we already have satisfaction in Jesus. And again, here comes the gospel with this better word that our internal sense of self is not what ultimately defines us. Because do you know who I am on the inside and how I define myself internally? Day by day, it's just all dependent on what I'm doing or how I feel. It's all determined by emotions and by my desires. And it fluctuates so e easily. But the gospel never changes. And the resurrection, if it's true, it's definitive. That the ultimate reality that defines you and me is this external reality that we now, we aren't defined by our inward desires, but we are defined by what God says about us, that we are sons, we are daughters, that we're brought in to his family. We have now the identity of Jesus. And finally, we have freedom from sin and shame. 
Sin is real. And to deny the truth of God is sin. And this is a popular opinion, but it's not just doing bad things that are sin, but willingly denying objective truth is sin. And that's not popular in a day when everything seems to be open to personal interpretation. But sin is real and it's deserving of death. Maybe you're thinking that sin is just dumb. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know. I think sin's just like this external kind of concept to make people feel bad about themselves that men with white beards who wrote the Bible kind of came up with, kind of keep everybody in line, by the way, that's not how the Bible was written. There's not, there's a huge problem with that, is that you don't have to teach people how to feel shame. So my question to you is, for those of you here who aren't a follower of Jesus, is what do you do with your shame? And we tend to do three things with it. We either ignore it, kind of pretend it's not there, suppress it, try to make up for it somehow, or accept it. And what it does is eventually it engulfs us and it ruins our lives. You don't just think you do shameful things, but you think you are shameful. You don't think you do certain actions, but you think you are defined by those actions. But again, the gospel comes and speaks a better word to that. The good news and the reality of the resurrection speaks a better word to that because what it means is you don't have to be defined by your sin. I remember a day and an age when I felt completely defined by my own sin. I remember that at the season of life where I felt like my relationship with God was completely dependent on my performance before him. And so when I felt like I was doing good, I felt like me and God were good. If I felt like I was doing bad, I felt like me and God were not on the same terms. And I felt like I was abandoned by God. Again, the gospel speaks a better word to that. Jesus speaks a better word to that. When he speaks to his disciples before his ascension, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he knew that this, he was speaking to a group of knuckleheads who were going to get it wrong. But again, the life of a follower of Jesus isn't marked by perfection. It, in, it maybe in one sense it's marked by perfection, the perfection of Jesus. But it is totally marked by our own unperfection. Because the same process that I said earlier is the, that we gain entrance into this kingdom of God, gain entrance in the good news of the gospel of repenting and believing, that's the same thing that we have for us on the table today. We all need to repent and believe. Repent of the things that we've been bowing to. Repent of the ways that we've been abandoning Jesus and living like the world and repenting and coming back and believing the good news of the gospel yet again. What again is Easter for, if not for that good news? On repeat, that Jesus has risen from the grave and we don't have to be defined by what put him there. We don't have to be defined by those things. Jesus has left those things in the grave showing his power over sin and death and Satan and any temptation that might seek to define us. And he has shown that those things are now put to death in him. So follower of Jesus in this room, feel boldly confident, not in your own ability to get it right, but you know the one who did get it right. You know the one who did suffer and die perfectly. You know the one who stood in your place suffering for your sin, and your trust is in him who rose again from the grave because the resurrection changes everything. Let me believe this. Let me pray that we would believe that's true. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that, again, the good news of the resurrection would go forth and um, not return, return void. God, that the, your word would reprove, would correct, um, would encourage, um, would rebuke, um, 
that your word would just be at work among us this morning. God, may I pray um, that our hearts would just be stirred to joy um, because of the good news of the resurrection. Now, we don't need to be defined um, by what previously defined us in our sin, um, but we really do have this hope of, of resurrection life, that we really do have this life, hope of being able to live with this freedom from slavery to our desires and sin and shame and also the fear of death. God, I pray you would bring comfort to those who need it this morning and a great joy to all of us as we continue to celebrate the good news of the resurrection. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.